Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. As many of you know, there was a tragedy in our community two weeks ago. Um, Esther Blum uh, tragically died two weeks ago at the age of 16. And um, we planned this program many, many months ago, uh, not expecting this to be a class, nor um, a session, nor uh, really like a processing of that tragedy. Um, And yet sometimes things drop in our laps in ways that are really serendipitous and just come at at the exact right time that we need them. And so I actually read the book that Rabbi Sela is going to talk to you about in just a moment, um, right after this tragedy occurred. And I've known him for a lot of my life, um, but there were pieces in the book that that really spoke to this particular tragedy and in many ways that struck me. And so though we're not going to focus deeply on that tragedy in our community, I just wanted to name it because I know that for at least the Beth Amers, um, that this is this has been something on our minds for the past two weeks and that will continue to be on our minds and continue to be a source of grief and tragedy and pain and anguish um, for many, many weeks and months and years to come. And in fact, right now, while this program is happening, Rabbi Kligfeld is on the field outside with a bunch of teens uh, to allow them to process through what the trauma of losing a friend, losing a community member of theirs. So there's... We, we love bringing many different programs here to Temple Beth Am, but it's, it is always that much more poignant when it's speaking to something that we are all already very focused on and, and, um, centering our worlds around currently. So Rabbi Sela, I know because he was a rabbi at uh, Sinai Temple when I was growing up and uh, was a rabbi that my family was, is very close to um, in, in his work and in their work at Sinai. And much of your story, I much of your Early history, I actually did not did not know. Um, but interestingly, the the shul that that Rabbi Sela is now at TRZ, um, I knew the former rabbi, Rabbi Tucker. Uh, because I went to high school with his children, and that was the first funeral of someone who died by suicide that I'd ever been to. Um, and Rabbi Sela speaks about that and um, and the complications and the poignancy of that in a community as a rabbi as well. So I'm going to let him do most of the talking, and then we'll have a little bit of a dialogue uh, afterwards. But thank you all for being here. This will be on a podcast later, so thank you all for lis- who are listening later on. And uh, really just a pleasure and a real kavod to have you in my community uh, and to be able to introduce you to everybody. And I am talking about my book. It's called Seeing Angels in the Shadow of Death. It's a uh, story of the important moments of my life and the teachers and teachings that helped me uh, in those critical moments. And um, I'm going to tell you some stories, and I'm going to intersperse them with the rabbinic teachings because I'm still a rabbi, and so I still have to do a little bit of that Torah study. It's not just purely the, the stories. And um, I'll try and do my best to play to two audiences, um, but as they say in Yiddish, with one tuchus, you can't dance at two weddings. With uh, one body, I, I'll try my best to focus on two, uh, 
to audiences. So my story starts in high school. I grew up, my father's here, visiting from Connecticut. I think I grew up a kind of pretty typical middle-class conservative Jewish upbringing. I went to a Jewish day school, the local Solomon Schechter Day School in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and we were involved in the synagogue. We weren't terribly religious, but certainly very proudly Jewishly identified. And most of my world was surrounded by the Jewish community that I grew up in. When I went to high school, so my first time really interacting with non-Jews other than a couple of neighborhood kids who lived on our street, I went to a secular uh, private high school. And that was kind of an eye-opening experience for me That's just right. to know that there was a world outside of my little Jewish bubble. Um, I met interesting kids who I had, didn't share a lot of things in common with, but getting to know uh, different students within the high school. And at the end of my freshman year of high school, there was an announcement made that there was a young woman who was in the class, and I knew her because there was only about 100 students in my whole grade, and that she was diagnosed with cancer. So this is kind of shakes the school. This doesn't happen every day, obviously. Um, but it didn't necessarily touch me personally because I wasn't in her small group of friends. It didn't, it wasn't part of, I wasn't part of her clique, let's say. Um, so I thought about it, but it didn't really affect me so much. Time passes, you see her kind of coming in and out of school. Um, she'll, you know, she lost her hair because of chemotherapy, but you would, we would see her from time to time. Uh, into sophomore year, again, we would see her from time to time, but, but she was spending more and more time outside of school than, uh, than inside of school. Comes the spring of sophomore year, and they make an announcement at an assembly, I believe, or maybe to, to just our class, that uh, her name is Aracy. said, Aracy's back in the hospital. It's time to, uh, you know, if you want to go visit her, you should probably go visit her. Without saying as much as, you know, well, this is really going poorly for her, I think we kind of understood this is something um, where if you want to see her, this is your opportunity to go. So again, up until this moment, I hadn't really thought about um, her illness and, and what it, uh, how it affected me. But something got in my head that said, you know, maybe it's time to, maybe it's time to go see her. Um, and so I asked my parents. I didn't drive yet. I said, you know, can you can you take me to go see her? And they said, okay. I think it was actually my father who drove me that day. And we went to go see her. Um, they stopped us in the waiting room. Her mother and father were there, and they said, you know, she's not really feeling great today. Uh, why don't you why don't you come back another day? Uh, but you want you know you can you can write her a note if you want, and we'll we'll bring her the note to let her know that you were here. So I said okay, wrote out a little note for her, gave it to her mom, and and we left. But it, I felt very unfulfilled, like um, like I wasn't actually doing because I'm not I wasn't a a rabbi back then, but I kind of knew if you're supposed to visit a sick person and you don't actually see them, handing them a note, it's not the it's not the same exact thing in terms of what you're what you're trying to do. Um, so I'm going to pause the story for a second, even though I don't know that you have the source sheet, but I'm going to teach a little bit of Talmud right now for just a second. So there is uh, a snippet of Talmud from Tractate Nadarim, which talks about the benefits of visiting a sick person. So it says the following. Rabbi Abba, son of Rabbi Hanina, said, He who visits the sick takes away one-sixtieth of his illness or pain. It's a nice teaching. Um, what I think he's trying to say, for the rabbis, if you've heard of the 160th ratio, sometimes they talk about kashrut this way. They're talking about the fact that 
you're talking about the smallest amount of something that you can kill, still call a thing. The smallest amount is the ratio of 160th where it still exists. So it's saying if you visit a sick person, you actually benefit them. You're taking away some pain. How much? A tiny amount. It's, it's, a, it's a measurable amount, but it's the tiniest amount measurable. So then they get into an interesting rabbinic debate. They said, ah, if so, let 60 people visit him and restore him to health. You know, he's kind of making a metaphorical statement about it benefits when you visit the sick, and they're trying to take him literally, and they say, oh, 160th, 60, 160th, I'm 60, you'll cure him, boom. If only all illnesses work that way, right? Get 60 people to visit someone. He replied, ah, the 60th is the 10th spoken in the school of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, uh, and he goes on to explain a little bit more. You have to be, though, the same affinity or constellation or age. Basically, what he's saying is that, yes, it's 160th. Uh, sorry, something's going on with the Zoom. 160th is still true, but it's always 160th of the remainder. So it's kind of like a Zeno's paradox where you approach zero, but you never get to zero. So you can keep taking away 160th of the remainder, 160th of the remainder. So, yeah, you can have a lot of people go, and yes, it will help. If you want to read me literally, he says, or you can read me still metaphorically, where you have to have some kind of affinity, meaning it only works if you make a connection. You know, if you visit someone who's sick, you're like, how you feeling? Bad? Oh, okay. See ya. That doesn't work, right? I don't know if you've ever seen, the OU has made some very funny videos on how not to do Bikur Cholim, on how not to visit the sick. And they're very amusing about you know, all the awkward things and, and inappropriate things that people could say. Um, so I felt kind of this inadequacy in terms of visiting her, but not really visiting her. So the next week I asked my parents, I said, can you drive me again? You know, I should really, should do, I, I wouldn't, I didn't use this language, but I should do the mitzvah properly. I should visit her. So I went back, stopped in the, uh, um, uh, visitor's room again. And her parents said, you know, she's really not um, she's really not up to taking a visit today. But again, you can write her a note, and we'll give it to her. Um, and I later learned that she had been, she was intubated, so she couldn't even you know communicate um, at the time. But they, she was writing with a pad, and they said, write her a note, um, and then don't leave. Wait, we'll give it to her. She'll read it, and then maybe she'll write you a note back, and you can and you can have that. So I said, okay. So I'm 16 years old, and, and I'm an arrogant teenager, and I think, you know, that I'm invincible. And I wrote something pretty that I, I cringe at today, but, but, but it, I don't know, and I don't know why I wrote it um, or why I had the, the brazenness to write it at the time, other than the fact that I was this arrogant 16-year-old who, um, who didn't really understand illness. And what I wrote to her was, if I could trade places with you, I would. Why would I write such an insane thing? In my mind, you know, cancer was like something that you could easily defeat and you just, you know, poor girl, she'd been fighting this for over a year. If I could, you know, tag in, I'll take it. I'm young, I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'll beat it. And then, you know, she can go on with her life. I can go on with my life. And and that's what I think I was thinking. But I, but I wrote this really, I would almost today say as obnoxious, but that's what I wrote. Because I felt bad that, you know, here I am, young and strong and healthy, and she's struggling. So I wrote this, folded it up, handed it to her mom. Her mom goes in, she says, wait, she comes back a couple of minutes later. She says, I don't know what you wrote, but she wrote back saying, tell him to come back tomorrow. And if he's 
If he comes tomorrow, no matter what, I'll see him. So I said, okay, <laughs> great. You know, again, not really understanding what she's really dealing with. Um, so I go home. I think I went to see her on a Saturday. Sunday comes and I'm a teenager. I'm futzing around. I'm not doing my work, whatever. Sunday afternoon rolls around. I'm pretty sure it was my father who said like, you know, you said you're going to go back tomorrow. You're going to go back. And I said, ah, I got to finish my homework. Maybe there's a game on TV. I don't know, whatever it was. Um, so I said, we'll go back next weekend. She'll be around next weekend. I'll go back next week. So we didn't go. Monday morning, we walk into school, walk into our uh, advisory groups. Um, and so there's about a dozen of us in the class. And the advisor comes in, and her face is dropped. And it's ashen. And she's just... You know, looks like she's been hit by something. And she tells us, Eresi died last night. And so we all just break down because we can't process that, you know, our friend, this person who was like the golden girl, I mean, she was the best athlete, she was a great student, she was attractive, she was, you know, dating us an upperclassman, everything, you know, was going right for her in her life, except that, obviously. So... And I, again, arrogant 16-year-old at the time, I'm like, I needed to visit her. I promised her I would visit her. I, I said I would. And she said to come back, and she was waiting for me, and I told her I would trade places as if you could. And I didn't. And she was waiting for me, and then she got tired of waiting. And that's what killed her. I, not I killed her, but, you know, like, I, 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 um, I had committed to doing something to help her, and I didn't, and that's what helped contribute to her. So I had this awful sense of guilt that I, um, that I carried around with me for a long, long time. Started saying Kaddish for her. Um, I didn't really, I mean, again, I was raised Jewishly. I didn't know all the halachot, but I knew pretty much you say Kaddish for a relative who died, not for a friend, and probably not for non-Jews. <laughs> you know, and, but I started saying Kaddish for her. I remember the rabbi said, well, who, who, who are you saying Kaddish for? I don't think anyone in your family dies. It's for my friend. He, said, he didn't say, don't say it anymore. I also, again, I knew you say Kaddish for a period of time, not forever. I couldn't stop. So this was my sophomore, end of my sophomore year of high school. I started, not, it wasn't like I went to Minion, but like anytime I was in Shul and it was Kaddish, I stood up and said Kaddish. Did it junior year, did it senior year. <laughs> Did it my freshman year in uh, of college when I was in Israel? I just could not stop. It was like this horrible sense of guilt, and that was the only way that the that was kind of my cathartic way of um, trying to express it. A lot of um, things were done in the high school during that time when um, when her she, she had a twin brother. He was still there when kind of all of us in class were were going through. Um, but I always felt kind of on the outs. I never felt like I was part of, because again, I was never part of her close friendship circle. Um, so I kind of would attend memorials or projects that they did in her memory, but it didn't, I never was kind of part of the group of mourners who were doing things together. I was mourning privately. Um, then I went <coughs> my freshman year of college. I went on the Native program and Still saying Kaddish, still thinking about her. I remember one time I went on a hike and found a really interesting kind of multicolored rock, and I thought, 
I'm going to pick up that rock. I know the tradition. You, bring, you put a rock in a grave. I'm going to put it, in, and I put it in my pocket, and I kept it with me. And I thought, okay, when I get back, I'll go visit her grave. I'll put the rock on her grave. And I got it in my head that I should call her mom on her yard site. I mean, English day, but on the equivalent on, on yard site. So her mom I had met a couple times um, through all of these things, obviously in the hospital at some of the memorials, but we hadn't really stayed that close. But I said, this is something I should do because I'm not there. I couldn't be at any of the memorials anymore. I'm in Israel. I wasn't, you know, there's no way I was going back for that memorial service. So I'll give her a call. So I figure that I need to um, get the time difference right. It's Israel. It's seven hours ahead of East Coast time. So, and it was May 16th is her, the day she died. So it's May 17th for me in Israel. It's like 3 a.m. And I figure, okay, that's 8 p.m. East Coast time. It's a good chance for for me to catch her. So I go to the phone in the dorm and I call and I was able to talk to her. I was able to reach her. I don't remember what we talked about. It was probably a five-minute conversation, but just tell her, yeah, it's Ehud. I'm in Israel. I'm studying abroad for the year, but I was thinking about you because I know it's you know the anniversary of her death. You guys probably had a memorial service today, and I was thinking about you, so I decided to call. Okay. She said, it's very sweet of you. Yes, this is what we did for the memorial, etc. Um, and we made a plan that when I, and I told her about the rock, and she said, okay, great, when you come back, I'll take you to the cemetery. You can put the rock on the grave. Okay. So about two months later, I'm back in the United States and I make arrangements. I go out to see her. They kind of live out in the, the boonies of Connecticut. And um, she takes me to the to the grave and we sit down at the grave and we're talking. And she says, Ayod, I have to tell you a story. I said, okay. So she said, your, your call really meant a lot to me. I said, I know it's like, it's nice to get a call, you know, a condolence call. And she says, no, 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 you don't understand. So she's a priest. She's an Episcopalian um, had worked in a congregation, but basically after her daughter died, she couldn't work in the congregation anymore. She actually switched to being a, a hospital chaplain. And like every rabbi hopefully has a rabbi, every priest has a priest, you know. So she said, look, after this year when um, – there was no kind of connection to heresy anymore in the school, and all of you guys had kind of gone away. Things changed. There was a dynamic. You know, when you all were still in high school and there were so many projects going on, friends and the memorials, there were her, I felt was feeling her presence, you know, really strongly. She said this last year was really, everything has kind of gone away, and her twin brother went away, and so the house is much quieter. So I was wondering, you know, is my connection to my daughter slipping up? And I was feeling like... I need a sign. And I was praying really hard for it. And the memorial service was coming up. And I knew it would be different because not everybody would come in because kids were in college. But I was praying for a sign to make me feel like I'm still really connected with her. And we do the whole day and we have the service and the reception. And she's like, it was fine, but I didn't get a sign. You know, I'm a religious person, I'm a priest, and I believe in these things, and I was really disappointed. She's telling me this, that she was confessing this to her priest about how her faith is being shaken a little bit and her, her concern about connection to her daughter. So the priest is asking her questions like, well, what about this and what about that? What? Tell me more details about what happened during the day, and she's going through, and well, we did this and we did that. And she said, oh, there was one strange thing she said that happened. She said, at the end of the day, 
I'm home with Bob and we're kind of, we're putting everything away at the house and it's just the two of us and it's quiet and the phone rings and I got a call from one of her classmates um, who wasn't able to come in um, because he was actually studying abroad. Where was he studying? Well, he was studying in Jerusalem in Israel and he it was very sweet of him, you know, to bother to call and so to remember her. And the priest said, uh-huh, so, and, and who is this? Well, he was a class, he wasn't even such a close classmate. He tried to visit her. They did this, like, note thing. And he's like, uh-huh, so you want, you're praying and praying for a sign from God. And then you get a random phone call out of the blue from someone who wasn't really such a close friend of hers, but who's still thinking about her and holding on to her memory. And he called from Jerusalem, Israel, right? The Holy Land? And you don't see this as a sign from God? She got very quiet, she said. And so I'm crying then, and, and she's crying. Um, and she said that, you know, shifted her whole perspective. So we're sitting there at Eresi's grave, and she said, you are an angel for me. Mm. That phone call changed everything. I was like, I don't know what I was doing. I was like, I was just, it was, you know, I don't know why I called. I don't know why I, I don't know why I did that. It just, I felt compelled to do it. And she said, whatever it was, you were an angel. I needed to hear a message and you brought it to me. So thank you for that. So that perked my interest because I was also not a rabbi yet, but I was a religious person trying to think, well, what is this idea about people sending messages to other people? What does it mean for someone to be a vehicle of delivering a message. And over time that I studied and like, oh, this is not just a Christian thing. This is a Jewish thing. So now I'm going to pause the story for a second to, uh, to prove to you that it's a Jewish thing, teach you a little bit. So one example that's really, really clear, it's now it's my favorite piece of, uh, of Torah text. So when Joseph is born and he's, having these conflicts with his brothers, his dad already knows that they're conflicted. He sends the other brothers off, and he keeps Joseph at home. Their other brothers are shepherding. And then he says, I don't know why he thinks this is a good idea, but Jacob says, Joseph, go check on your brothers. Of course, this leads to the whole thing where they throw him in the pit, and he gets sold into slavery, and he goes down to Egypt, and the rest of Jewish history happens. But what happens right before they, they, Joseph finds them? He can't find them. He's lost, or, he, or, he, or they're not where they're supposed to be. So this is what it says in, in chapter 37 of Genesis. Um, Yaakov said to Yosef, go and see how your brothers are and how their flocks are faring and bring me back word. He sent him to the valley of Hebron. When he reached Shem, a man came upon him wandering the fields, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he answered, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're pasturing? And he goes on to say, oh, they're over there. They went this way, that way. And he goes, okay. The Bible stories are interesting. Why is it so critical? When you tell a story, do you say, we were driving to Disneyland and we got lost and we pulled off the side of the road and we got directions and then we found the way there and we got there. Is that really critical to the story? The point is that he met his brothers, not that he stopped and asked for directions, except that the details, of course, in the Torah are important. So Rashi says on this, this was the angel Gabriel, as it said, and the man Gabriel, he makes a quote, for, he makes an analogy with a quote from the book of uh, Daniel. And then I, um, there's like seven more sources. I didn't put them all in my source sheet, but there's seven more that all say this was an angel. 
Because if he didn't find his brothers and they didn't throw him in the pit and they didn't, he didn't get sold into slavery, well, what's going to happen the rest of Jewish history? He's got to get down to Egypt so that they can all meet him later. It has to happen. He needed to find them. A messenger had to be sent. Now, was this an angel disguised as a man or a man for who, for a moment became a messenger, was forced kind of against his will to deliver a message? And so in that moment, he's an angel. In that moment, he's serving that um, that role. So, it's not just a Christian thing; it's a Jewish thing. So, we'll see what I'm doing at time. Okay, fast forward uh, a couple of years. I go to college. I go out here, UCSB. That's how I first came out here. Um, things are going wonderful. I'm enjoying my degree. I have a wonderful girlfriend. Wonderful group of friends. The girlfriend became my wife. That's why the people here are smiling because they know that. Um, everything's going wonderful. I'm getting my degree in um, biochemistry. I want to be a scientist. Everything's kind of going swimmingly. And then in the um, winter of my uh, winter quarter of my senior year, so I've just kind of come home from come back from winter break. It's like January, and classes have started, but I'm kind of feeling run down. And I'm not like as peppy as when I started exercising. I thought, oh, I'm, uh, exercising really makes you tired. Okay. But I could never seem to, you know, um, get a, get my energy up again. Um, I lost a bunch of weight and I was like, wow, the exercising really works. Why didn't I start that sooner? You know, boy, you just, the pounds just melt away. But I also started to get a, a, a lump, a swelling in my neck. And that, um, at first I thought, oh, maybe I'm sick. I have a cold, you know, swollen glands. But it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and doesn't go away. And nothing, you know, whatever other symptoms I have, aside from the weight loss and the tiredness, I don't have kind of the scratchy throat or stuffy nose. So I go to see the, um, I go to see the campus health doctor, and she knows right away. And they order a bunch of tests. And I, I don't remember all the conversation that she had, but I remember her distinctly saying, this is going to change your life forever. So after biopsies and a whole bunch of tests, they diagnosed me with lymphoma. Um, it all kind of a whirlwind of, uh, of a couple of days. And so I immediately fly home to Connecticut to stay with my parents and, uh, and start a course of treatment. But it totally knocked the legs out of my life, not just because I was kind of feeling young and healthy and wonderful, but also because I was growing more in my religious life, and it really threw me for a loop theologically. I didn't know a lot of theology, but I knew enough that the Torah says, if you get sick, it's because God is punishing you. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. You know, if you're, if you're good, God rewards you, and if you're bad, God punishes you, and one of the ways God punishes you is illness. Now, that's not the end of Jewish theology, and please don't think that that's the end of Jewish theology, but it is the beginning. And so for the uneducated, like me at the time, I knew that, and I remember sitting distinctly and thinking, what in the hell did I do to deserve this? Well, I could think of things. I wasn't a saint. I could think of plenty of things that I'd done wrong in my life, but thought that this is a pretty harsh punishment. And so it really scared me theologically and emotionally why is this happening to me? I asked the existential question that I think most people ask when something bad happens to you. Why is this happening to me in particular? So my doctor was a wonderful doctor, member of my congregation, and he took care of me physically, but I needed someone to talk to about the emotional and the spiritual aspects of illness. And who did I call for help? 
Well, you'd think I would have called my rabbi, but my rabbi, who had I grown up with, had moved on. And so the rabbi of my home synagogue had only come in my senior year of high school, so I hadn't really developed a close relationship with him. Um, but I knew a hospital chaplain. Okay, so she wasn't a rabbi. She was an Episcopalian priest. But I knew that she worked with sick people, and I knew that she knew what it's like to deal with young people who have cancer. So I called um, Eris's mom, Reverend Sandy, um, and we started talking. And she was my pastor. She was my chaplain during the time that I was uh, sick. So we would meet every uh, couple of weeks. We would sit um, in like a, the cafeteria of the hospital after I get a treatment or something. And, and I pour out my heart and she'd listen to me and, and be a good pastor and be a good chaplain. After, um, sorry, I'm just looking where I want to put the teaching in the, in the, in the story. I'm going to put it right here. So I'll tell you about our most important conversation in one second. So I'll pause the story for a second. Um, oh, I, now I can see. So Rebecca, sorry, Rabbi Schatz put the <laughs> Rabbi Schatz put uh, the the um, a PDF of the sources in the chat. So if you're if you don't want to just hear, but you want to see them, it's on a PDF there. So there's uh, a book that someone sent me right when I first got sick. And again, it wasn't from uh, a close friend. It was from an acquaintance who sent me a book called Swimming in the Sea of Talmud, which is two rabbis, uh, conservative rabbis who were chevruta for many, many years over the Talmud. They went from beginning to end, and they picked out like their top 100 little snippets, and they translated them and taught a little lesson about them. It's a beautiful way to kind of dip your toe into Talmud. And so somebody sent me this book, and this is the second teaching of the book, and I had never studied it before. So it says as follows. Rabbi Chiyabar Abba fell ill, and Rabbi Yochanan came to visit him and said to him, is your suffering dear to you? Now, if the OU, you know, makes these cute videos about how not to do Bikor Cholim, this would be a classic one not to do. You visit someone who's sick and you say, are you enjoying your sickness? Why in the world would any insane person ask another sick person, are you enjoying your sickness? Now, these are two rabbis. So why would a rabbi... You know, he's not crazy. Why would he do something so insensitive? It's because they are working from the same set of assumptions. They're working on the same plane, which is, if you are a good person, then it's not what it says in Deuteronomy that your illness is because you have done something wrong. Rather, it's a concept that they call yisurin shelahava, which means sufferings of love, which is that, this is the best way I can give you the analogy, God is giving you this in order to grow and benefit from it in some way. The best analogy I have is imagine if you're a good student, you get 98 on your test all the time. You're always getting 98, and your teacher thinks, this student could get 100. Why aren't they getting 100? Are they, are they not putting in the time to get those last two points? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fail them on the next test, no matter what they get. That's going to scare the living daylights out of them. They're going to buckle down, and on their next test, they're going to get 100. That's kind of the analogy of what this is. You take a good person... You give them something really horrific, not that they deserve it, but it's going to force them to do something and, and, and focus on an issue that they're not spending time on, that they're not actually thinking um, that they need to look at, but they do. So Rabbi Yochanan visiting Rabbi Chia, who's sick, is saying to him, are you enjoying the suffering? Because it's for your benefit. It's not God punishing you. I know you're a good person. You're going to benefit from this in way, some way if you can figure out what it is the thing that God is trying to make you learn. Rabbi Chia has a great answer for him. 
neither this suffering nor its reward. He says, no, I'm not enjoying it because I'm in pain. And even if intellectually I think, or theologically I think, I'm going to benefit from this. I don't want to suffer. Who wants to suffer? Come on, we're Jews, right? We don't suffer. <laughs> so Rabbi Yochanan, very good pastorally, says, give me your hand. Rabbi Chia gave him his hand, and Rabbi Yochanan raised him up, which we understand to mean like healed him in some way. But he didn't say to him, no, no, figure it out, lean into the pain. No, he's a good pastor. If he can do something to heal him, he heals him. Okay. Then Rabbi Yochanan falls ill. So the guy who done the visiting is now sick himself. And Rabbi Hanina comes to visit him. A third rabbi comes in to do Bikr Cholim. Says to him, is your suffering dear to you? They're all on the same level. They all understand what's going on. He's thinking, Rabbi Yochanan, you're a good guy. You must be supposed to learn something from this. So are you enjoying the fact that you're going to get some good reward from this? Rabbi Yochanan says, neither this suffering nor its reward Rabbi Hanina said to him, give me your hand. He gave him his hand. Rabbi Hanina raised him up. So same thing. All right, I'm not going to tell you you should suffer. If I can do something, I should help you. So parallel situations, except there's one thing that's different. We know from the first story that Rabbi Yochanan has the magic touch. He healed his friend. So the rabbis in the Talmud ask a great question. You have to flip the page. Why didn't this happen? Couldn't Rabbi Yochanan raise himself? He knows the magic cure. Why couldn't he do it for himself if he could do it for his friend? And the Gemara answers, a prisoner cannot free himself from prison. A prisoner cannot free himself from prison. When I read that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because when I first got sick, it felt like a prison sentence. I was carefree in college, do whatever you want, enjoying life. Now I'm stuck. Sorry to my father, in my childhood bedroom, living with my parents again, working on a cycle of doctor's appointments and treatments and blood draws, and, and I can't do anything I want, you know, and two weeks out of the three-week cycle, you can't go outside because because uh, your immune system is so compromised, you can't be around other people. When COVID hit, by the way, I was like, I know what quarantine is like. <laughs> I know what it's like to wear a mask all the time around other people. It's just like having chemo and being immunocompromised. You can't can't do what you want. You're stuck at home. So reading that made me reach out to uh, to Reverend Sandy. So we met a whole bunch of times over the six months that I was getting chemo and radiation. And after all my scans came back clear, the doctor said, okay, you can kind of restart your life. But I didn't feel like I could just go back to go back to my life. I didn't want to be uh, a scientist as much anymore. I wasn't sure that that was really going to be my path. And I was having a little bit of a crisis of, well, what's my future going to hold? That's all I've studied is biochemistry. It's all I really trained to do. So I was telling her about my, my angst and about how, you know, I, I wanted to get something out of this experience, but I don't know what. She's very good. She's sitting there just listening and smiling. And she said, so Ehud, so what do you think we've been doing for six months? It's like, what do you mean? She's like, you know, we've been talking. You sought me out because I'm a chaplain. Maybe you should think about becoming a rabbi. And I was like, come on, Sandy. Like, yes, I'm Jewish, and I like being Jewish, and I was involved in Hillel and my synagogue and all this stuff. I was like, what am I going to do? Like, read Torah for people for the rest of my life? That's what you're telling me I'm supposed to do? She's like, Ehud, what have we been doing for six months? And that's when, as my father would tell me, Ha'asimon nafal, if there's any Israelis in the, in the room, you know, it clicked for me. I said, oh, 
oh yeah, there's that whole side of pastoral care that clergy does. Rabbis do that too. I never thought of that. How how insulting to my future father-in-law and to all the other rabbis who taught me over the years that uh, that, that was a big important part. So I don't know how many rabbis became rabbis because an Episcopalian priest suggested it to them, but there's at least one in the world. <laughs> So, and that's, I mean, that's just what a, what a guta neshama she is, right? She wasn't like, now you must come to Jesus and you should be an Episcopalian priest like me. No, she was not going to convert me. She knew who I was and my identity and she knew this is your path. I'm just here to help give you the message, you know? I brought her a message and she brought me a message and I needed to hear it and I needed to hear it from her because I trusted her. So, so I did. I mean, it's not it's not so much like a spoiler. I became a rabbi. <laughs> that's you know, that's uh, that's where that part of the story uh, goes. But um, but there's a little bit more to uh, to the story and some things I wanna I wanna add to it as well. So, um, for any of you who know people who have uh, cancer, it's not like you um, get finished with your treatment and you're done. You still have to get follow-up scans. You still have to, you know, be monitored for, for a while. And my doctor told me that with my particular kind of cancer, I only had to be monitored for five years. If I had five years of clean scans, then the likelihood of it recurring, of that particular kind of cancer recurring, was almost zero. You have to be worried about lots of other things in general and keep good health and see your doctor, but you don't have to keep getting CAT scans, you know, every few months. So... Five years out, I know, you know, I had a date set and I would go see him and I knew, okay, on this day though, I'm going to be done. You know, you're not cured ever, but I'm, I'm going to kind of celebrate being done with all my, uh, with all my scans. And so by then I was in rabbinical school already. Um, and I wanted to mark it in some kind of Jewish way. So now I'm heavily, obviously, if before I wasn't heavily invested, now I'm heavily invested in my, in my Jewish life and Jewish ritual. And I had remembered when I was six studying these things about Jewish healing, and it talked about, oh, there's this Jewish tradition of changing someone's name when they're very sick because the angel of death will, you know, pass them by. I didn't like that because it made it sound like the angel of death was just kind of like a, a low-level clerk and like if you didn't have the right name on the registry, that that would, that that would work, you know. If that would work, we would all change our names, you know, and it would, it would work. So, but I did then read this thing about some people who changed their names and then realizing it happens all throughout the Bible when something happens in their life. Avram becomes Avraham, Sarai becomes Sarai, Yaakov becomes Israel. I mean, we have it all throughout our tradition that when something happens in your life you and you experience a radical change that maybe you need to do something with your name. Now, I liked my name. I didn't want to change it. I was given uh, Ehud as from birth, um, but we grew up poor, so we didn't, couldn't afford a middle name. So that's a little joke. I just, but I didn't have a middle name. So neither in Hebrew nor in English. So, and a lot of my friends did. So maybe I was always a little jealous. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take on a middle name and that's how I'm going to kind of mark this, uh, mark this moment. So I looked at different things. I was reading these sources of healing and I decided, well, if I'm going to go with a middle name, I'm going to go big. So I actually took on two middle names and, um, I marked the 
the moment by having an aliyah at my at the minyan that we were uh, a part of in Manhattan, and I gave the Devar Torah that morning, and I and I used the example of the angels from the story of Yosef and talking about angelic messengers, and I used it as a kind of an opportunity to publicly thank all the people, my parents, my my, my was my girlfriend at the time, and then became my wife, the doctors, the nurses, Reverend Sandy, etc. Um, and then did my own mashup of the Mishaberach Focholim with the um, formulaic name change that you uh, can find in a rabbinic manual of, of when you change a name. And I added this middle name. So it's on the source sheet on the back. So this is a, I don't have too many original things, but this is an Ehud Sela original of a, of a mashup of two prayers. May God who blessed our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Becca, Rachel, and Leah, bless Ehud, Ben, Amina, Dav, Verina, who's come up for an aliyah with reverence for God, respect for the Torah and Shabbat, and in order to change his name. Just as Jacob became Israel when he struggled with the angel and prevailed, Ehud, wow, that's this week's Parsha. Uh, Ehud, Ben, Amina, Dav, Verina has prevailed in his struggle against cancer and is now completely healed. Therefore, he is someone else and will be called among Israel Ehud Netanel Chaim, which means God has given life, Ben Amina Daverina, in the name of all the names and the names in the name of the angels appointed for healing and relief. May the Holy Blessed One continue to keep him in complete healing and prolong his days and years in pleasantness. May he spend his days in abundant vigor and tranquility henceforth and forever. Amen. So I took that on because I felt like that was the appropriate name for expressing what I was feeling. Which was not that God, you know, miraculously cured me. It was the chemo and the radiation and, and, and the, you know, the help of my family and friends. But I felt like I had a second lease on life. Um, that I was used this to change my life's course and direction and that I would be following the path that I, um, that I needed to go down. I'm going to tell one more brief, uh, brief story and then I'll, and then I'll wrap up. So I'm going to skip the, the second to last source, which is about uh, saying Birkata Gomel, and just mention the last source. So fast forward uh, a few more years, I'm working at Sinai Temple, everything's going fine, except I hear that, you know, or, or after a couple of years as an assistant, I realized I don't want to be an assistant forever, and I hear that there's a job opening up in Northridge at Temple Ramatzion, so I apply for the job, but at the same time as I'm applying for the job, I'm starting to get some weird um, uh feelings in my uh in my stomach and my chest i'll go through this quickly but long story short i had pericarditis which is an inflammation of the lining of your heart um, which can be dangerous if you don't treat it my father actually had it i remember when i was a kid sometimes it can be treated with drugs me being such a lucky guy you i couldn't they tried the drugs that didn't work it was permanently damaged and so they had to do open heart surgery in order to remove the pericardium which is this membrane um, which is supposed to normally be kind of thin like a skin of a grape the doctor said he said yours was more like the peel of an orange like thick and rough and it was causing you your heart to not beat uh, beat so well so i go through that thankfully everything's okay i go up get the job i'm working at ramazion and it's time now for my uh, older kids to have their uh, bar and bat mitzvah, and we set the date for the uh, for the for their bar and bat mitzvah a couple years in advance. As we're getting closer, um, I'm realizing, well, what's the date that that we set for their bar and bat mitzvah? It's May, it happens to be May 20th, 2014. It's the same day that I had the open heart surgery in the English calendar, May 20th. 
So that's kind of, so that's kind of stuck in my head. If it's our first kid's barn, bat mitzvah, so we invite the whole world, including, of course, I invite Reverend Sandy. And so um, she says, you know what, I'm going to come. I'm going to fly from Connecticut. I want to be there for this. So we talk a couple of times and make the arrangements or whatever. And she says, you know what, you know what May 20th is? And I said, well, I mean, it's the date of the bar bat mitzvah. It's the date I had open heart surgery. She said, yeah. And I said, I don't, I don't know. She says, that's the day of Aris's funeral. I said, oh my God. And she said, that's the day you had surgery. She said, you know, someone was, was looking out for you. Someone was carrying you because you carried someone on that day. Because I was one of the pallbearers at, uh, at Aris's funeral. So of course, then I'm on the phone and I'm crying and she's crying, whatever. So she came, so she came to, um, so she came to the service. It was really beautiful. And I'm giving the charge to my, to my kids. I'm trying to keep it about them. So I talk about them and what I hope for them, et cetera. But I said to them also that you did something special for me at this, uh, at this moment. I said, because sometimes there's something broken and it needs a tikkun. It needs to be fixed. I said, you know, for me, May 20th has very bad associations. You know, even though I didn't really remember, but it's Eresi's funeral date. It was the day of my heart surgery. So yeah, it worked out good, but it's, it was a day of a lot of anxiety going in for that because anytime you do heart surgery, you never, never want to take a chance with it. I said, but now I have this great memory of May 20th, you know, of this great Simcha and we had a full congregation and so many friends and relatives came from all over. And it's just, you gave me this beautiful memory because this is the day of your, of your um, bar bat mitzvah. And it reminded me, I finally understood the verse that we say every morning in, um, in Suke de Zimra that I'd never really thought about, but I just kind of would go through a million times, which is at the very end of Psalm 30, which is the Psalm you say right before the mourner's Kaddish in Suke de Zimra. I can't quote the rest of Psalm 30 by heart, but that because that's the part that you say at the end if you're leading, and I'm usually leading Psuke at Maishul. What does that mean? You turned my lament into dancing. You undid my sackcloth and girded me with joy that my whole being might sing hymns to you endlessly. O Lord my God, I will praise you forever. So I talked to them about that at the bar about mitzvah and about how they they made this tikkun for me. There's more stories in the book. There's a whole thing about Ramatzion and about what happened at Ramatzion and how we've managed to kind of bring the community back together again. Not perfectly healed, but in a much better and uh, healthier and stable place than they were uh, when I was there 11 years ago. And that's the highlights. That's my story. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.